I'm glad to be here with you again for one last time. You get an upgrade next week because of your faithfulness, so that's a, that's a good thing. But I'm excited to be able to walk with you through Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13 this morning, because we're going to get to see uh, two more ways in which Jesus is superior to angels, better than angels. Two more ways. He's already given us a whole lot of ways that Jesus is superior to angels. In fact, that Jesus is supreme in those early verses that Mike reminded us of in his prayer. But we get to see two more. And I I have to tell you, um, I I was even surprised. I don't think it had dawned on me uh, what we're going to find out today. And so it's made an impression on me in a good way and led to application in my life. And that's certainly what I'm praying will happen in your life as well, that these verses will lead to personal application that will definitely inform you so that you'll understand God's revelation of himself better, but it will also transform you. And that's what I'm praying for myself as well. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'd like to read for us these, um, these verses, and then I'd like for us to look at them in more detail. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. 4. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. And the author of the Hebrews, of this letter to the Hebrews, knows it is the word of the Lord. He quotes it as completely authoritative in his life. All right, if there's one word to focus on in this whole passage, then it's that word founder, which is the title for my uh, exposition of it. It's in verse 10. It was fitting that the one who for whom and by whom all things exist, namely God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's a word that's used twice in Hebrews, twice in Acts, and that's it. It's a word that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, again, the ESV translates as founder, um, that um, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder of, and the finisher of our faith, or the author as NIV has it. So consistently translated as founder in Hebrews, it's also two times in Acts, once in Acts 3, once in Acts 5. 
It can refer, the word can refer either to the originator, to the author, the pioneer of a venture, or its leader, the one who maybe wasn't the startup but is the current leader. Here it has the idea of the startup, the founder, the one who's brought it from X all the way over to Y. And that is a complicated word, that word founder. In fact, there's even been a syndrome associated with it. The founder syndrome is a noted phenomenon in business, in nonprofits, in universities, hospitals, and yes, even churches. This last week, uh, Lee and I went back to North Carolina to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Church of the Good Shepherd becoming a particular church. I know that just sounds horrible. You know, there's such a particular church. You know, like, oh, we, we, no, we won't take you. And we'll take you, but we're very particular. That's not what it means in context. It means that you're a real live church now. You can uh, engage in self-governance. You're self-supporting. You're acknowledged by the presbytery as an official church. So... We'd been there for two years working away until we got it to that status, official church. So we went back for the celebration as um, sort of the founder, I guess. And as I went back for the celebration and swapped stories with people and saw a lot of old friends, I came away with lots of mixed emotions, but one powerful emotion of how, Lord, did you do it? You know, how on earth did you do it? I made so many mistakes. I was so messed up. I was this strange blend of insecurity, wondering, do I have the right stuff to help start a church? I, I don't think I do. And pride, on the other hand, of like, well, it's going to be this way. No, we're going to do it this way. And wanting control, wanting to make it clear uh, that this is how it's going to happen. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I'll leave judgment to him finally. I'm not competent even to judge myself. But I know for sure that there were lots of mistakes made and lots of flaws in the founder of the Church of the Good Shepherd. That I always get uncomfortable with this founder's syndrome idea. And that that is that the founder of an organization can become its worst enemy after a while. It was the recognition of that syndrome that helped me realize, ah, we need a transition plan for me to get out of here. Uh, because the founder can kill it. You think, why? No, the founder's going to love the church. He's going to really pay, he's got more invested than anybody. The founder's going to really help that entity, that church, go very well. That is true, but the founder can love the business. The founder can love the school. The founder can love the church. The founder can love the nonprofit to death because it's my baby. It's my baby. This is my thing. And, and this, no, no, that's a great idea for another place, but that's not the way we do it here. No, we've always done it this way. We've got values, we've got a vision, we've got a mission. They all have to remain static. We cannot change it because this is what got us here. This is the way it is and don't even think about messing with my baby. And without realizing it, the founder is strangling that baby to death by causing there to be no innovation, no creativity, no changing with the times in order to continue to thrive. It's, it's a horrible cocktail of a founder to remain completely in control and to cause that organization to suffer. Not his intention that it would suffer, but it might suffer. You need exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. All right. Uh, how about with Steve Jobs? Big movie uh, made on him in 2015. Uh, 
that's not an attractive picture. Now, it may not be an accurate picture either. I am no expert on Steve Jobs. And I know the book was controversial, the movie was controversial, whether it followed it. But Steve Jobs comes off from that movie looking a little bit like a jerk. I mean, he wouldn't acknowledge the out-of-wedlock daughter that he had. He had a paternity test and all that, and he just treated that ex-girlfriend horribly and that daughter horribly and other people horribly. Um, you know, the, the, one of the key lines in that film is that they're getting ready to launch one of these products, and, and it's sort of three different launches that are looked at in the film. And it, one of the launches, the pressure is unbelievably on. They're going to launch it. They're going to demonstrate it. This crowded auditorium of people, it's all going to be awesome. And the chief computer guru who knew about that stuff said, it's not going to work right now. He says, you've got to get it to work. You know, we got a few minutes left before it starts. You get it to work. And, uh, and it's really tense. He goes, I don't know that I can. I'm not sure I can. He said, you get it to work. I mean, God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. So you go get it to work. And the guy just coolly comes back. Yeah, sometimes you'll have to tell me how you did that. You think you're God. Yeah, you, you work on that. Not an attractive picture. The social network, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he seems like a great guy to me, everything I see live, but that movie certainly gives a different picture. He doesn't look very attractive. He kind of stole somebody's idea, maybe, or did he or not? Did he, you know, kind of push out one of the early guys that was the financing behind it and didn't, I don't know. Again, I'm not expert on any of these. I'm just saying in the film, you don't come away thinking, man, the founder of Facebook's really a cool guy. And then just this last year, when the movie called The Founder came out about Ray Kroc and the starting of McDonald's. It's an ironic title because Ray Kroc is not the founder of McDonald's. It was the McDonald brothers who are down in San Bernardino, Southern California, and they're selling so many milkshakes that they need a couple of more milkshake mixers. And this salesperson from Illinois is having a hard time selling these mixers, but he hears about them, he goes down, he checks it out, and sells them some more mixers and sees their operation and falls in love with it. Just, that is incredible what they're doing. I can't believe what they're accomplishing here in this little burger shack. And they had worked it all out just precisely as to exactly what the, the layout of the business would look like, the concept behind the business, and it was selling like crazy. All of these disposable, you know, they didn't have plates and knives and all that. They just had disposable paper products you could throw away. You came up, they didn't go out to take you your order like the bell hop or the car hop would on the roller skates or whatever in the 50s. No, no, this one was that you came up to the door, you got your food, you got it ultra fast. It was incredible. And so he just falls in love with it and worms his way in to got to get them to franchise. We've tried to franchise, but it doesn't really work because we lose control and product quality goes down and the concept is uh, diluted and deteriorates. And so, no, we're not going to do that. He goes, well, no, we, we've got a way we can pull this off. And anyway, he, he warms his way in and gradually he, he takes over. So much so that when one of the brothers goes into diabetic shock at one of these outlandish things that he's done to take their concept away from him. He visits him in the hospital and, and uh, kind of gets the rest of the company. And they have a handshake agreement on part of it. Again, I'm just going on what's in the movie. I have no idea whether that's the real story, the whole story, the true story. We all know that the first to present his case seems right until another comes and examines him, as Proverbs 18 says. So we ought to know that. So there are two sides to every story but in the movie at least. 
He gives a handshake agreement. I mean, yeah, you guys, going forward, you'll get 1% of the sales of McDonald's Corporation everywhere going forward. Well, never got that. Never, even though that would have amounted to like $100 million a year uh, for these founders, these McDonald brothers. Sorry, you don't get it. Being a founder is complicated. It's the drive, the control, the strength that really gets the company started, and it's the drive and the control and the strength that kills it. We today, in Hebrews chapter 2, see the only founder in the history of the world who is without flaw and worthy of our worship, our worship, because of the verses that Mike alluded to earlier in his prayer from earlier in the letter that show that this Jesus is God Almighty, equal with God in every way. And I get that. That's why we should worship him and adore him. Well, Jesus is an unusual founder. He is a divine founder. And so the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And from heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. So he's in a class by himself. But I don't know if you picked it up the first time we read through these verses, but that is not the reason why Jesus is worthy of our adulation and of our um, emulation wherever we can. It's not because he's God. It's because he's human. That is the point of Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. There are two parts to the reason. Why is Jesus better than angels? Two parts to it. In verses 5 through 8, we'll see that it's because Jesus is descended from the first Adam. Jesus is human. And that is what makes him greater than angels. Whoa, whoa, what? Really? He's human and greater than angels? I thought, he's human, but the angel, he, he's a little lower than the angels. We're, we're going to come to that. The second part, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus is greater than angels, better than angels, superior to angels because he is destined to be the second Adam. Let's look at the first argument, then the second, and then let's apply it. First argument. Jesus is greater than angels because he is descended from the first Adam. Now that's kind of a no-duh observation, like, well, yeah, he was descended from Adam. And we've got Luke 3 in the genealogy there that takes Jesus's uh, genealogy not back to Abraham where Matthew had taken it but he goes back from Abraham all the way to Adam that Jesus was ultimately the son of Adam and that is why Luke probably my favorite of the four gospels yes John is great for showing Jesus as the son of God but Luke is great for showing Jesus as the son of man and he's human he is like us in every way he identified with people the poor people are mentioned so often in Luke women are mentioned so often in Luke it's it's a very accessible very human story of this very human Jesus who was descended from Adam from the first Adam uh, in looking at this, I want to describe that, that first Adam uh, in four ways here. We see first that he is, in fact, superior to angels in verses 5 and 6. That's the point. That's the, why the argument is still taking place in the way that it is. He's um, adding to the reasons that were given. We looked at reasons in verses 1 through 4, reasons following these kind of connector words, logic words, therefore, lest... Four, and then four indi indicated some reasons. Well, again, we find a four in verse five. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and then it goes into a quotation from Psalm 8. Not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. The coming age, the last days, that's what the topic of conversation has been. That's what we're talking about, the world to come. And angels are not going to rule the world to come. It's human beings that are going to rule the world to come. So therefore, Jesus, as a human being, as a child of Adam, will, is superior to angels because he'll rule the world to come. And in that superiority... Uh, we can share, as we'll see later. Wow. So he's better than angels, not because he's God, but because he's human, because he's human being. Second word that we see that will help us uh, understand this better than angels. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. Tested. Jesus, as descended from the first Adam, is superior to angels, verses 5 and 6. And then tested. He's been tested. For a little while, lower than the angels. Some translations have a little lower than angels. We talked about that earlier. If you went back and read Psalm 8, which I hope you will do, it's very important to, because Psalm 8 is being quoted here, you'll see in, again, many translations, it just says, made a little lower than the angels. The truth is, the Hebrew could just as easily be translated for a little while lower than angels as the Greek is here in Hebrews chapter 2. And I, in fact, think that is the right way that we should take it. For a little while made lower than angels. And again, this is not talking about Jesus per se in these early verses. This is talking about Adam. This is talking about human beings, male and female, created in the image of God. Psalm 8 is David's quiet time based on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And God said, let us make man in our own image. In the image. And so in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. So your destiny, human beings, I've created this whole habitat for humanity here, and I've said every point along the way, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good after the sixth day. And now your job is to rule over it, over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the air, over the animals on the ground. You are in charge. You are the king of the jungle. And in fact, there is a lot of jungle out there, but I've created a garden for you to start in. So live in this garden. You can eat any of the food there. You can do all of this. Um, but this is your home. And now be fruitful and multiply, have children, and push this garden out. That this garden might extend over the entire face of the earth and that the jungle out there might be subdued. Meaningful work that we were given to be tenders of the garden, meaningful opportunity to create cultures, to create business enterprises, to work with other human beings, sharing our gifts for the common good. Wonderful, wonderful opportunities for a little while, made lower than the angels. And what was the purpose of that? Just for a little while, you're going to be under the angels in terms of authority, in terms of your power. You'll be under them. And the point of that is that you might be tested. Hey, you can eat any one of the trees in this whole garden. They're all good for food. You can eat any of them that you want. You know, if you like that taste more than that taste, then you just hang out at that tree. Somebody else will be hanging out over at that tree. 
So that's fine. You can eat it. But there is one that you are not to eat of, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that one. Now, that's rough. Why did God do that? Why not just say, you can eat anything you want here? He was testing Adam. He was testing him. Before he gave him admission to eating of the tree of life, whereby he would live forever, wanted to make sure that he would pass the test, that he would prove himself to be an obedient son of his Father in heaven who created him. So the test was placed in the midst of the garden. How'd that work out? Not well. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam doing what every one of us does. Being silent. Being passive. When apparently he's right there as his wife is being tempted by this serpent. I'm not sure that's a literal snake. It may be that he's just called the serpent, the dragon, this being that is able to connive his wife into taking a bite out of that one tree in the whole garden. She took a bite out of that one forbidden fruit. And he did too. He was passive and silent. Passive and silent. And then, though, he does take the bite and he disobeys and all of a sudden then sin enters the world and death through sin. Separation of soul from body, eventually physical death, but also environmental death, Social death, psychological death, 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 death. And it's still in the world, and Mike Spear alluded to that too. The death and destruction that have come from the hurricanes. and That's God's wake-up call to us. You think, that's a problem. God, why is God behind all of that? And I agree, it is definitely a problem. But it's not an insurmountable problem. We know that the whole creation has been subjected to futility, Romans 8, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, our forebears, we're complicit in that. And so even the natural disasters can be laid on our doorstep. Certainly the Las Vegas type disasters and the, world, the wars going on in the world, all that, it's, it's, we're a broken mess. Even though we are superior to angels by virtue of our creation in the image of God, that's never said of angels that they are created in the image of God. These angels are highly intelligent, moral creatures capable of sinning, which they did. And we know that from Scripture that many of those angels did not keep their first estate, but they rebelled against their creator. Among them, their leader, Satan, again, shadowy figure, we don't know a lot about him, but we know that Satan was the original rebellion against God, a high archangel, beautiful, wonderful creation of God, and yet for reasons that we don't understand, this high archangel turned against God. And since he couldn't get at God, who is immortal and cannot change, he went after the peak of God's creation and that which God loves more than anything else, human beings created in his image. And so he came and he tempted Eve and Adam. He succeeded and now he's thinking, I got him. Well, that didn't end up that way, thanks be to God. But this first Adam was superior to angels. He was tested. And then we learned something else about him, which is great. He is glorious. Again, quoting from Psalm 8, in the second half of verse 7, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Human beings are glorious. This psalm was a favorite at the time of the Renaissance. 
when some people began to see that even in the church that human beings are great. They're capable of all kinds of things. High culture, great art, great literature, great city building, warfare techniques, not so great, but human beings are fantastic. And this humanism of the Renaissance and the Reformation period extols human beings. And we have no problem with that as Christians. We shouldn't. We also agree that human beings are great. We're created in the image of God. We should be great. But in that greatness, we just need to make sure we're not thinking we are God because we are not. We are creatures. We are as infinitely separated from an infinite God as is the lowest protozoan shape in the primeval soup. Creature, creature. Creator, alone, creator. So we're separated on that side of the scale. But as Francis Schaeffer was also fond of saying that human beings have incredible dignity too, that on the side of the image of God, we are a case of one unique from all the rest of creation created in his image in some distinct way that we are capable of loving and being loved by him in a way that could be tested and in a way that shows our intelligence to match his, our volition, our moral sense to match his, um, emotional life somewhat to match his. So we are in his image and we are his delight. And yet we fell. And then finally, uh, this fourfold description from Psalm 8 of human beings that were superior to angels, tested, glorious, regent. That's who we are. We are regents. We are ruling as kings and queens of Narnia, ruling as kings and queens of planet Earth by the establishment of Almighty God. I'm putting you here. You're ruling the planet. You're in charge. If there's a problem with the fish, you're in charge. If there's a problem with the birds, you're in charge. If there's a problem with the animals, whether domestic or wild, you're in charge. Get it fixed. You can do it. Now, it wasn't as though he was a deist and he just walked away and left them. No, he was still walking with them in the cool of the day in the garden over and over and over. They had a great relationship until the fall when all of a sudden now this beautiful earth is producing thorns and thistles and the ground is hard, and we've got to figure out a way to water it, and there's all kinds of mess. It's much more difficult. But that original creation, that habitat for humanity, was fabulous. You are my regents. You are kings and queens here, men and women. And that is true. It's not talking about Jesus. I don't think the author is talking about Jesus in verses 5 through 8. He's talking about human beings, particularly that first Adam, who was created in innocence and created with all kinds of greatness, and then plunged into brokenness, death, and despair through sin. So, interesting point before we move on then. Also, just the way that the author refers to Psalm 8. For it has been testified somewhere, back at verse 6. It's been testified somewhere. Did he not know the reference? Is he like us in that regard? They go, you know, somewhere in the Bible it says... uh, I can't remember where, like, yeah, right. Don't ever trust anybody that tells you that. Somewhere in the Bible it says, you know, that uh, bread is the staff of life or cleanliness is next to godliness or, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's, It's somewhere in there. I don't think so. Not any of those in there. You need to know the address. So when you're memorizing a verse of Scripture, uh, it's a good idea to memorize the verse but then two times, not one time, give the reference. I learned that from the navigators long, long ago. Memorizing verses, you give the reference fore and aft to show its Navy background for the navigators. You give the, you know, John 3.16, 1 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should never perish um, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Say it at the beginning, say it at the end because that's going to be the part that you're going to have the hardest time remembering. And it's true. So is that what's going on here with this writer? Somewhere it says, oh, come on, you're, in, you're writing inspired scripture and you're going to give me somewhere it says? I don't think so. I think there are two other considerations here. One, somewhere it says it's Psalm 8, for goodness sake. This is so well known by all of us that I don't even have to tell you. These are people who are people of the book. They are a Jewish audience. They are passionate about these scriptures. They hold on to it. Now, would that they were passionate especially for scripture and didn't hold their traditions on quite the same high level, but they did, and that was the problem. But scripture was revered. And they knew Psalm 8. So it's such a well-known passage, I don't think he had to say Psalm 8. He can say somewhere it says. You've heard that in speeches before. I've heard that in certain sermons, especially my African-American brothers. They'll say, because I remember somewhere it said, and it'll kind of flow out like that, and they'll give some verse. Everybody in the whole congregation knows the verse, but it's like I'm just messing with you a little bit. Somewhere I heard, well, of course we know that. Of course we know that. So we're going to bow to the word of God. That's what he's doing here. Second consideration that helps us see why he introduces the scripture this way, and then he says, and again, and again, later in the passage when he's bringing up other verses from the Old Testament, it really doesn't matter where it says it in scripture. As long as it says it in scripture, we're bound by it. I am under the authority of this book. I do not put myself over it as its teacher and its expounder. No, no, I put myself under it as its obedient servant, as God's authority over me. For wherever Scripture speaks, God speaks without error and with full authority. So somewhere it says, doesn't really matter. Wherever it is in Scripture, we're bound by it. And what it's saying is human beings are great. Human beings are superior to angels. We were tested, and how'd that work out? We'll find out in just a minute. But we're glorious. We have glory and honor by virtue of our high creation. And we're regents for God. We serve as his kings and queens in order to subdue the earth, replenish uh, the earth by being fruitful and multiplying. All right, the segue comes with verse 9. Now, in putting, or the second part of verse 8, and then leading into verse 9, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Psalm 8's great, and it says, man, everything's going to be in subjection to humanity, and Adam's going to rule over everything. But how's that working out? It's not working out. Wait, that's not right. We don't see everything in subjection to human beings. So how do we explain that? We explain that by that one word, tested. Adam and Eve were tested, particularly Adam was tested. He was the representative head of the human race. He was the captain that went out to take the toss at the beginning of the game. He was the one on whose decision the rest of the contest would um, rise or fall. And he chose, my will be done rather than thy will be done and all hell broke loose. We're going to find out there's a second half, and there's a new captain who will go out and take the toss, a new captain who will be the representative head of, Christian, of, of the entire human race. 
And thanks be to God, that new captain is introduced in this verse 9. His name is Jesus. Not the Son, which has been his name early on, right? The Son has been the show, his superiority to angels. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies uh, footstool for your feet? Did he ever use that word son to refer to an angel? No. But to Jesus, to the eternal logos, he said son. So that's the superiority. But that's not the word that's used in verse 9 of chapter 2. Not son, not Christ or Messiah, not Lord. No, Jesus, which is his human name. It's a name that means Joshua. It's a name that means Savior, Deliverer, Redeemer. This Jesus is going to take the coin toss for the second half, and it's going to be a different outcome. He's exactly like the first Adam in every way except sin. So let's see then how this will play out, beginning with verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We've looked at creation that it was he, God, made human beings a little lower than the angels. So that was creation, made a little lower than the angels. We've seen the fall, that although God made everything subject to Adam, we don't see it that way now. Why is that? Because of the fall, because of the test that Adam failed. And now with verse 9, we come to the glorious next stage of this grand gospel narrative that weaves its way all the way from Genesis to Revelation and Scripture, beginning with the creation, then moving to the fall of Adam in the garden where he said, my will be done, not your will be done. And now we come to that stage of redemption, that God, not being content to destroy human beings created in his image, found a way an incredible way, an amazing way to save some human beings, to be a people for his own possession, his beloved sons and daughters. And then we'll come finally to that fourth stanza of the, the great song of redemption, restoration, when all things will be made right. And then we will see human beings crowned with glory and honor and great dignity. And we'll come to that in a second. Um, Jesus is greater than the angels because he is descended from the first Adam. He's human, verses 5 through 8. Jesus is greater than the angels in the second place because in verses 9 through 13, he is shown to be destined to be the last Adam. The first Adam came out, took the, to the coin toss at the beginning of the game or made decisions at the beginning of the game, plunged the whole team into all kinds of misery, now there's a new captain, a new sheriff in town who is fully descended from that first Adam. He is the last Adam, and he is going to call the shots going forward. Let's look at how he is described then in verses 9 through 13. First word, tested. Same language that was used from Psalm 8. Now we see it used of Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus was for a little while made lower than angels. The last Adam was for a little while made lower than the angels. 
What does that mean? Jesus is lower than the angels? I thought Jesus was God. Doesn't it say that in uh, verse 2? Spoken to us by his Son, heir of all things, through whom he created the world, the irradiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. He's greater than the angels. Well, in his incarnation, for a little while, he became less than the angels while he too was tested. As Adam had been tested, now the second Adam is going to be tested. What will he say? Will he say, my will be done rather than thy will be done? At the very beginning of his public ministry, and probably many times before that, but we see it recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, the devil, the same high archangel that tempted Adam and Eve back at the very beginning, is showing up again on planet Earth. And he comes to the second Adam as he had to the first. And he says, after 40 days in the wilderness with eating nothing, hey, I know you're hungry. Why don't you just tell those stones to become bread? And what does Jesus do? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan tries again. And he'll do something else. He says, hey, you're going to need for people to you know, pay attention to you. You're from a backwater town up there in Galilee. You've been hanging out. Nobody knows you. I'll tell you what. Let's make a splash. I've got you up here on this pinnacle of the temple, the highest point. Jump. Because the Bible says that God will have his angels have control over you, and they won't, they'll catch you lest anything should happen to you at all. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's still working on it. He goes, hey, look, let me just finish. look at all the kingdoms of the world, all of this worldly glory, all the wealth, all the power, and it's mine to give. I am the prince of the power of the world. I am the prince of this present world, and I will give it to you if you will bow down and worship me. Come on, Jesus. We could be awesome together. We could really do things. Luke, come and run the universe with me. That's a pale reflection of what's going on here. And Jesus says, it is written. The Lord your God is the only one that you shall worship. It is written, it is written, it is written. He put himself under the authority of the very scripture that he himself had inspired with the Holy Spirit and with the Father, and he bowed under it because he was fully human. He was every, in every way like Adam except for sin, and he's being tested. And at the end of that confrontation, wow, that's it. You know, it's all done, right? No. It says that, Satan left him until an opportune time. I'll come back again when he's hungry or when he's lonely or when he's suffering. And at the very end of his life, we see it again. My soul is troubled to the point of death. Would you guys come and, and just watch and pray with me? Peter, James, and John especially. Come on, let's, let's go. We, I need to pray. It's, it's a tough night. A lot going on here. Oh, Lord, please help, I pray. I'm so glad for these brothers who are with me. They're going to hold me up in my hour of need. Um, so hear their prayers as they intercede for me too, Lord. Uh, Lord, excuse me just a minute. Peter, come on, could you not stay awake even for just a little bit? It's like, oh, no, no, sorry, Lord, we're with you. I mean, I'm, the rest may desert you, but I'll never desert you. It's like, how low could he be? He's looking at all kinds of physical torment, but more than that's the spiritual torment and the feeling of abandonment. The crowds flipped on him all of a sudden. The leadership of the church um, his day is completely against him. And now his own friends are falling apart. They're falling asleep. They're not backing him up. 
Satan is just, can he get him then? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Father. If there's any other way, take this cup from me, but if not, not my will, yours be done. Adam had said, my will. Jesus said, thy will. And every one of us today has that choice. As you leave here and you live your life, are you going to say, my will be done? Or are you going to say, thy will be done? Lord, rule me by your word over me, and I'll submit to it rather than doing my thing, what I want to do. He was tested, and he passed the test. Unbelievable. Great. So, just as tested was a word that was used in these first verses from Psalm 8 to describe the first Adam, so tested is used in these verses to describe the last Adam. As glorious was a word used in those earlier verses to describe the first Adam, so glorious is the next word that could be used to describe this last Adam or second Adam. And this language comes from Paul as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that makes the distinction between the first Adam who was from the earth and the second Adam. So you can sometimes call first Adam, second Adam. Sometimes it's first Adam, last Adam. I like last Adam in this context because this is it. He is the captain. He is the last great hope of humanity. And he is the one who has delivered us from the clutches of the devil and from the wages of our sin in a way that no one else could have ever done it. And we're going to learn about what is that way as we um, look here next. He is glorious. He is crowned with glory and honor. Just as we read from Psalm 8, now we see in verse 9, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. But look at the reason why he's crowned with glory and honor. Not because of his ontology, his creation in the image of God, but not just his person, but his work leads to this crowning, this glory, this Jesus, you are something. Not only because of who you are intrinsically, but because of what you've done. You chose God's will, not our will, even though it meant suffering. And so he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus' death wasn't for him. No, he was sinless. He didn't have to die. No, his death was for us and for our salvation. And thanks be to God for that. His glory comes in not just for who he is, but for what he has done. And we see that redemptive work that is um, beginning in verse 9, but then it's wrapped up even more in verse 10, which I would say is the key verse in the entire section. So let me read that one to you again. For, again, here's the reason all of this uh, glory is given to Jesus, because it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory and daughters, we all understand, should make the founder of their salvation, namely Jesus, perfect through suffering. 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 Wait, Jesus had to become perfect? Wasn't Jesus perfect already? He had to become perfect? Well, it was fitting, not for Jesus' need, it was fitting for our need. That unless Jesus took on our humanity and died the death that we deserved, we would still be in our sins. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
but not my will, yours be done. Was there another way? No. If there had been, surely God the Father would never have made God the Son go to the cross and suffer the agony of estrangement from him, whereby he cries by a psalm that we'll see in just a minute, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father would never have done that if there had been any other way, but there was no other way. For God to be both just and justifier of those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, to quote from Romans 3. In order for God to be just, but also justifier, then he needed a God-man. He needed one who was God because only God could pay for our sins. But only human beings should pay because it was human sin. Now we have Jesus, the second, the last Adam, who is fully human, but he passes the test. And therefore, he can suffer death not just for himself. He can suffer death for everyone. And so it was fitting that God would arrange that system. Not fitting for Jesus. He didn't need it. It's for us. We needed it. And thanks be to God, Jesus delivered. He brought many sons and daughters to glory. We will achieve the glory that was ours by virtue of our creation in the image of God in Genesis 1, Psalm 8. Now that's back on, t- on tap because of what Jesus has done. For he who sanctified, and he's made perfect, that is made complete, his death on the cross is made complete for us because of his suffering and his death. And that word suffering is perhaps the key to this whole section of the argument. That he suffered, not for his own sin, but he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, as the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 5, verse 8. We too learn obedience to God through the things that we suffer. We patiently endure under trial because we're human beings and we're great, created in the image of God, and we see Jesus, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher finisher of our faith. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying. In verses 11 through 13, we see then the same description uh, of uh, of Jesus. I I got to fill in under the Redeemer point, just under verse 10. Three words that I was going to help you with, and maybe they've already been up there. Oh, yep, they are. Substitute. Jesus was the substitute for us, that he died in our place. The suffering, which was so intensely valuable for him, he suffered not because of anything he had done. He suffered because of what we had done. And he was tested, as was Adam, and he passed the test. And then, Savior. He is the founder of salvation, and therefore he is Savior. His very name, Jesus, Joshua, means Savior. So we have a substitute suffering Savior, and that is the key to our redemption. Now, in verses 11 to 13, we see in conclusion, and it's a little bit flipped than how it went in the first argument, Jesus is superior to angels. And we are too. We are too. How are we made superior to the angels in an incredibly greater way than we were even in the Garden of Eden? Because Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus adds us into himself. We are in Christ now, and he links himself with us, identifies with us, and is not ashamed to call us his brothers. So he is our captain, and because of that, we get to tie ourselves to his coattails And he says, quoting Psalm 22, which started out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children God has given me. Psalm 22 is quoted, Messianic Psalm. Even the Jews at that time understood that Psalm 22 was Messianic. And we do as well because great David's greater son is in view in that psalm. Great David wrote the psalm, but he's thinking of one beyond himself who suffered in the first half of the psalm and who was raised from the dead in the latter part of the psalm. And so he's, great David is pointing to even greater David's son. And then Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. The context of in both chapter 7 and in chapter 8, it talks about Emmanuel, God with us. And who is this Emmanuel? He is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Looking all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that this Emmanuel will be born of a virgin. The virgin will conceive and bear a child. What? Virgins don't conceive and bear children. Well, in order for there to be the complete fulfillment of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, that will take place with Jesus. And Matthew makes much of Isaiah 7:14 to help us see that this is messianic as well. And because of it, we are brothers with Jesus. And because we are brothers with Jesus... We are superior to the angels. We are great. Three implications with which we close. So what? So what if Jesus is greater than angels because he was descended from the first Adam and destined to be the last Adam? So what? Well, first, supremacy. That Jesus is supreme. We celebrate him as the founder more than any other founder. We even bow down to worship him as God, but we look to him as our older brother who just saved our lives. Would you be devoted to the person who laid down his own life to spare yours? Of course we would. And because at the risk of his life, in fact, the giving of his life, Jesus did what we could not do, we owe him everything. And he is supreme and we would worship him. How would that inform your worship the rest of this week, privately, one-on-one, just wanting to spend time with him and to say thank you? Or even this next Lord's Day when we gather corporately, how might this knowledge that Jesus suffered even to the point of death for us, inform your worship. Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he emptied himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship him. There is so much dignity in this founder of our salvation. Second implication is this word significance. We gain our significance through this Jesus. We are linked to him. We have worth and dignity as human beings by virtue of our creation in the image of God in Genesis 1, which is extolled in Psalm 8. But we also have inherent worth and dignity because we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Think about this difference between angels and human beings. Which angels did Jesus die for? Zippo. None. He didn't come and give up his life for angels. He came and he gave up his life for you and for me, for human beings. He said, you're worth it that much that I will even die for you. Wow, thanks be to God. That gives great significance to you, but I don't want you to think especially about your neighbor. I want you to get that picture in your head. I thought about putting it up here and I thought, well, that'll be a distraction. 
the picture is of a whole lot of human beings with signs in front of them saying, I am a man. And if I am a man, I have inherent worth and dignity. I have deep significance. And I am somebody. And that Memphis sanitation worker strike from almost now 50 years ago is famous for that, I am a man, I am a man. Listen to um, C.S. Lewis in a very famous, uh, justly famous quotation that uh, we know from him. I've got two seconds to find it, and I did. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Even the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship. Because that is our future, that kind of glory. From the weight of glory, a sermon he gave in 1941. Human beings are significant. Don't, uh, we should not dare to treat another human being with any kind of disdain, disrespect, injustice, or oppression because you're messing with God at that point whose image is stamped on that sister, stamped on that brother. Final word, and that word is security. I want you to appreciate your greatness. Yes, think about your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the supremacy of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself, the significance of every human being, but remember your own security. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was secure. He did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. You and I can do that as well, that we recognize who we are in Christ and we have this grand security. And now I don't have an inferiority complex. I don't have a self-image problem. I can serve other people without defining my identity through my servanthood. My bank account does not define me. My position at work does not define me. My Lord and Savior defines me willingly and I will serve him in the lowliest and the most menial spot without jockeying for position because I know who I am. As I heard George Robertson say just yesterday, and I thought it was a great, great phrase. We don't live for acceptance. We live from acceptance. And in that security, let's go. Let's pray. Father, go with us. For if you don't go with us, we're still mere creatures. But when you go with us, we are creatures created in your image and saved by your Son with inherent worth and dignity beyond our imagining and with a future and a restoration yet to come that we can scarcely conceive of. Help us then this day to walk faithfully with you under your word. In Jesus' name, amen.